0: For anyone that's like kind of on the fence about doing an adventure race, uh, just jump in and do one. And I think that's the best thing you can do yourself. And I think you'll find uh, you'll get hooked right away. It's, it's such a great sport and it's such a welcoming community of people that after you do that first race, make sure you just go talk to people.
1: Welcome back, Dark Zone fans. This is your host, Brian Gatens. Today we are joined by Rib Mountain Racing's Tim Buchholz. Tim and his teammates recently secured third place at the US ARA Nationals held this past month in Cable, Wisconsin. Not only is Tim a prolific adventure racer with 142 as credit, he is also a race director, a music educator, and a great all-around person. You'll find him to be engaging and fun and thoughtful. He talks openly and honestly about his own challenges as a racer and how well the race went and how well it didn't go in some places. Thanks for joining us. Sit back and enjoy Tim as he tells us all about his Nationals experience. The first question I always like to lead off with whenever we talk about any race and I talk to any racer or group of racers is tell us your story, tell us your National story. We'll talk about who you are and your racing experience, but we're hot on the heels of a very successful Nationals experience. Um, All feedback is very, very strong. Tell us how it went for you and for Rib, and walk us through the race itself.
0: Oh, man. Well, first of all, it was just an incredible course. Paula Waite always puts on great races. I think we're so fortunate to live here in Wisconsin where we get to do two of her races every year. And, uh, having done her races and seen everything she's thrown at us over the past 10 years, uh, I think prepped us pretty well for just being, uh, being ready to anticipate kind of anything, right. You got to be ready for anything she throws at you, uh, which she did right. Starting off with, a, a just a lot of instruction in the clover leaf and lots of course options and lots of, you can do the section, any order kind of stuff. Um, I, I it went really well for us really. I, I think, um, I think having done her races before, uh, was a benefit. Fit to us and benefit to any teams from from the area that have done her races before. Um, we raced really smoothly We'd kind of been prepping for uh, nationals in Wisconsin since like it was announced in fall of 2019. And then of course, fall of 2020 didn't happen. So it gave us an extra year to prep for nationals in Wisconsin. So um, my wife and teammate, Anna and I, along with our core teammate, Eric, who lives in Chicago, um, we did a bunch of racing together. I think we probably did a dozen races uh, between 2019 and 2021 nationals that just to kind of tune the team up and um, dial in transitions and dial in team roles out on the course and Uh, I I think we really executed it pretty well. Um, I I navigate for the team and I think nav was pretty spot on. I think maybe I overshot a couple things by 20 or 30 meters here and there, but never more than a minute or two, which for a race as long as that, I think it's about as good as I could have hoped for. Uh, and our speed was, was pretty spot on. We're, We're not the best technical mountain bike team. We're not the best paddling team. I think if you look at those splits for those sections, you'll see we're we're certainly not in that, in that top five for either of those sections, certainly not in the paddling I know. And no, yeah, also not in the mountain bike, uh, but we're really, we're a strong foot team. We're a strong nav team. I, I think we were second only to, um, to quest on the, uh, fastest, uh, O time passes foot time on the O section. Uh, so we, we beat out with Dolly by just a, by 15 or 20 minutes on that section. And there, that's a super high benchmark to set because they obviously won that race and we're racing fast all day. So uh, I think we made up a lot of our time on just foot nav and navigation, some really tricky technical terrain uh, that, that you find up here in, in Wisconsin through the, you know, I, I guess the areas where the, the glacier went through, right. You have all this glacial moraine topography that looks really unique. And is if you're not used to seeing it, um, I, I heard quite a few people talking afterwards about how it's just a whole different kind of navigation when you're looking at really subtle features, you know, drops in elevation of 10 foot, um, depressions, 10 foot little knolls. And that, that's what you got, uh, kind of pop marking the whole landscape, getting used to reading a map like that. So so let's talk a bit about the navigation, because we haven't discussed that with the
1: other podcast that we've done on this topic, and you're the navigator for your team. For those of us who live on the East Coast, we tend to have big features to work off of. For the folks who live in the West Coast, they have really big features to work off of. Um, Wisconsin, and clearly from what Paula had told us and what we had heard from Garrison, what an amazing endurance area. The races that go through there, the mountain bike races, um, the ski endurance races, all of those it really was set in an area of the state that is just beautiful. For those of us who don't live in that section of the country, talk a bit about that area, talk a bit about what was the, what did you have to use your navigation? What was it like in terms of the terrain and things like that? So what was it like as a navigator? What was your biggest challenge?
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the biggest challenge in that area uh, of Wisconsin is, is always just staying on the map. Because um, because there's areas... I mean, she she did an amazing job of mapping pretty much every trail we came across was on the map. Um, and there's a lot of trails, right? I mean, there, there's hundreds of miles of single-track mountain biking trails alone, n- not to mention the hundreds of miles of ski trails and, and winter fat bike trails. I mean, there's just... It's hundreds and hundreds of miles of trails. So she's got all that mapped, which is helpful, but there's still big areas that she... Uh, I think very purposely put checkpoints in the middle of areas where there weren't trails. And you, when I say you got to stay on the map, it's not just saying like, like you said, on an East coast or West coast nav where you're you know saying, okay, we're just got to basically head East toward that big hilltop or that big mountain top. Right. right. Um, this is like, you know, between me and the next trail, there's about eight or 10 depression features uh, some small ridges that separate them and a few knolls. And I have to know exactly what, one I'm on, because if you're not standing right at the top of a, of one of those eight or 10 depressions, you're not going to see the checkpoint at the bottom of it. So you, you gotta be like spot on within 10 meters on your map of where you are at all times. And this was pretty uh,
1: much a, a home a home race view, you, right? You you obviously you're a Wisconsin resident, you've you've raced in that area. Yeah. Clearly your your familiarity with that type of terrain played a strong role in your navigation capacity. It was an added benefit to your navigation.
0: Oh 100 percent right? The orienteering clubs around here use that terrain all the time. I mean, we've uh US Orienteering has had their championship both in cable on that same map, a much older version of it. Uh there's also been the National Orienteering Championships in a different part of Wisconsin on the exact same type of terrain that the glacier, uh the last glaciers uh left or last uh, ice age, I should say. Um is there a lot of elevation? No, I mean no, not not at all. Right? Like I mean I mean, I I I suppose the overall, yes, overall what happens is the um There's general big rises and falls, but it's never just like a straight uphill. You have all this up and down topography and this glacial topography as it slowly transcends up or down. So I think if you ask teams who did the race, like, yeah, the biking felt like there was a lot of up and down because we're on some gravel and dirt roads at times. It felt like they were going up forever, but uh, there was like these general ups. You wouldn't really see it as you're looking out in a landscape in the woods and navigating. So the, an, an interesting dynamic of this,
1: of this race was usually um, very often adventure races are linear, right? You, you get a map at a certain area and you traverse a swath of land for however long it may be from point A all the way to point Z along the way you collect checkpoints and finally the race is over. Paula created a unique experience where the racers were given the maps, were given choice, and it was very Rogaine-like. And for our listeners, Rogaine is when you kind of pick the direction you go. Were you expecting that kind of a race and how did you manage that in the beginning of the race?
0: Uh, Yeah. A, we were expecting it. We've seen her do that lots of times. Um, And, and then B I I think what you have to keep in mind is like not having a linear course. You, you, we didn't know for the first 12 hours, like what place we were in. Right. Like no idea. Right. So uh, it puts the onus on the teams to really push themselves and, and keep keep pushing. Right. If you want to do well, you, you can't really say like, Oh, we got it. We're just behind this team in front of us. or we're just, you know, we're just ahead of this other team. We got to hold off. You have no clue. Right. Um, so it's, it's a good lesson to be learned. I think for lots of teams, like you, you got to just kind of race your own race and race against the course and race against yourselves to push yourself as hard as you can. Cause we didn't know for like, whatever it was, 10 or 12 hours, what place we were in. Um, and you just got to, you just got to keep pushing through that. So it creates a really, um, it creates a unique landscape where you, you kind of see these teams passing on different sections. You know, we're coming out of the paddle and, and we see root stock coming off the water and first ahead of some other teams. So we figure, okay, they must've paddled that first lake section faster than anybody else. But, but now we're doing it second along with some teams. And it's just, it's this really interesting dynamic, um, that you're right. It isn't this linear thing where you just kind of see where you kind of fall within the standings from, from the start of the race.
1: And when we talk to newer racers who migrate over from other endurance sports, very often you judge your own success based upon where you are in relation to other racers. But in adventure racing, everybody's got a set of maps. They have a course book, which are the general directions to go. Um, They have their map and their compass and anything can happen on that course the entire time. It's funny that you mentioned that you were 12 to 14 hours into the race before you had a sense of where you were. Cause literally that's like the halfway point to a 30 hour race. And I, and what was your finishing time? I mean, was it was a 25 hours, 26. Uh, no, we were like 28, 28 we were hours. closer to 28 hours, something like that. Yeah. So if you think about it at 12 to 14 hours into a race, halfway through the race, you had no yep. sense of your own place you could have been way in the front way in the back. You had no idea. And off you went. Yeah. You, you, you used a really good term earlier when you described your, you said it was a very smooth race. And the fact that you spoke about how for, Those sections, you were in the fifth fastest here, the fifth fastest there, and yet you were third overall. Were there any points in the race that were not smooth, where there was a mechanical, where there was a nutritional issue, where there was a major navigation issue? Or did you just sort of just keep checking off the boxes over the course of the race?
0: I mean, we had some hiccups like everybody else, but there were, there were just tiny ones, right? I mean, like my feet were bad on the last trek. probably as I've done over a hundred adventure races. They're probably as worse as they've been in any race, including multi-day races for whatever reason, right? They got wet right away and they were wet the rest of the day and they never dried out. So my feet were killing me. So yeah, so you slow down a bit, right? But uh, we're, we're again, we're not the best technical single track team. And she had some pretty technical trails on, on one of the cloverleaf loops. So we, you know, we didn't hold the kind of speed we probably would have liked to, if it was on smoother trails, but, but nah, man, I mean, I, I think it was just, you know, there's a lot of luck in adventure racing. I mean, you, you do what you can to like. Make sure your bike is in good shape before the race. Make sure you've checked uh, you've checked that everything's you know in good working order. Make sure all your gear is dialed in. Um, and, but that's you know there's just these mitigation factors that um, help, but can never really like uh, prevent something. You never know what's going to happen. So I think we were fortunate that we didn't have any major issues throughout the course.
1: And, and that's part of the appeal of adventure racing, right? What we do is as a, as a as a team, we throw ourselves into an intentionally uncomfortable situation. And we want to see what happens during it. And we do the best we can to improve it. We have strong gear. We, we're prepared physically, mentally. Our feet are good. Our clothes are good. We have the weather. All those things. And then we go into the situation, which we don't know quite know what is going to happen. It sounds like your race went very, very smoothly. Some of your fellow racers, I've been very honest and open on Facebook, that their race went far from smoothly, where they were just thrown off from the very, very beginning. So congratulations to you and to Rib Mountain for such an outstanding result at nationals and and obviously this is a big deal for you because you felt i would assume that as a proud Wisconsinite, that you felt a sense of ownership of the race
0: oh yeah we were we're super proud to have the race here i think we we had been like petitioning troy for the previous r- director of usara for like five plus years maybe six or seven years to get the race up here because we knew how good the topography was we knew how good the trails were and we knew how good paul is as a race director so yeah we were like super proud to have the race here. And then of course, like wanted a good result from it. Right. Uh, we, we had taken third at the previous nationals in North Carolina, which wasn't a race that I would call in our wheelhouse in terms of the style of the race, that the navigation wasn't nearly as technical. Um, it it was not a navigator's race, which tends to favor us when it is. Uh, but we still managed to pull off third. So We're thinking, man, if we could pull off third there, what if we could hold off and get on the podium again here? And, uh, I, I think we're fortunate enough that we were able to pull that off.
1: How close was the fourth place team?
0: Bend, one of the two Bend teams, is the next team behind us, and they also cleared it. They were the last team to clear it. Only four teams cleared the course, but I think they were an hour and a half, hour hour and a half back.
1: Gotcha. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a sprint down to the finish line with two teams. No, no,
0: neck. no. Yeah, it's always fun when it happens, but uh, <laughs> happy to kind of coast it into the finish line when you can. <laughs> you
1: know, it's it's interesting to talk to a, a a team that does so well and does so well as you said so smoothly, because very often. Somebody in telling the story will talk about how there was a massive bike mechanical at one point during the race, or they left their food behind, or they forgot, what, they, or they something fell apart, and it sounds like Rib just really had the kind of race you wanted to have, right? The things that you were good at, you were very good at, and the, the places in which you have to work really hard at, you worked really hard at, and it sounds like it worked out really well for you. It,
0: it did, and, and I, I should also like put the huge caveat on this conversation that I tend to be a, a major optimist so as, as you're saying things like this, Brian, I'm thinking, well, that's right. Eric did break a spoke and we had to wrap that. We each took a pretty hard bike crash. I took a hard one into a tree and and it took one off a bridge into a swamp.
1: <laughs> you so, know, so let me so, let's, just let's, let's pause for a second. So <laughs> this is the point. So in my, in my head, in my head, Tim, I have, um I think of the podcast listener who comes to this unknowing about adventure racing, right. And yeah. they stumble across, they listen to this podcast and the manners through which our guests and your host, by the way, the way that we describe the adventure in adventure racing, and we just kind of go past it. Like we broke a spoke that would end most rides. You had a rapid big deal. There was a collision with a tree. We got back on the bike. There was a fall into a swamp. And yet we just tell these stories. And what do we do, Tim? We just roll on from there. Yeah, smooth. It was smooth. Smooth race, smooth race. So aside from the <laughs> spoke, the The, the spoke, the crash, and the swamp, any other exciting parts of the race jump out of you
0: oh man i i think I think those are the big like you know heart skips a beat for a second kind of moments, right um I, I think on honestly, most I think everything else went went pretty much as to plan
1: yeah the very often the the worst thing to do in a post race interview is to ask a team about another team's experience because you barely see each other during the course of the race. Were there any teams though? in terms of their spirit their excitement their enthusiasm that you ran to ran into on the course you had a conversation with anybody jump out at you
0: oh man um i would love to be able to think of someone but to be honest with you with the way the course was laid out we just didn't see teams that often uh i think the only spot we really saw teams in in, um in numbers was out on that big O trek section but it was in the middle of the night so all you see as you're passing is a bright headlamp that blinds you and you can't even quite tell who it is until you kind of turn around and check out if you can recognize their Jersey. Right.
1: So based on that answer, how did, how did your team do psychologically being so alone on the course for that long?
0: I think we were mentally prepared for it. So we did well. And and I think it's because we had kind of talked through as a team, um, the scenario that, you know, if, if we can't let ourselves just start to get lax if there aren't teams around, I think often, um, we found this in ourselves in the team, um, you know, in a race that long, you get 20 hours in and, uh, and you're trying to push a pace, but no one's around and you just kind of let the legs go from a, a fast jog to a, to a kind of a fast walk or a slow jog and, Uh, we kind of, you know, we wanted to leave it all out there. So, so we kind of, we'd had those conversations beforehand, which is why I think it worked pretty well that we, we did keep like that whole trek section we ran, I think the whole thing.
1: And the other part too, is when you get into a race, you start getting tired, you're looking for ways to pass the time. And if you're on a track and if you're on a road or a trail, you fall into the trap of having conversations with each other. And then by having those conversations, you're very quickly, you'll walk by a turnoff by accident. You'll, you'll get turned around. So when you factor in, you're tired, you're hungry, you're a little bored, and you're kind of out on the course by yourself. It's really easy for a high quality team such as yours to have a mental error that could severely impact the race.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's th- these 30 hour races, these 24 to 30 hour races are kind of right in that range where that tends to happen. Like in ex- expedition races, the legs are long enough you know, we're talking multi-day stuff, the legs are long enough where you can have those conversations. And, you know, you've got an hour or two between turns, right. Or between at least between checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the sprint races, the true sprint races, like the six hour, eight hour stuff, you know, we usually don't get to talking much because we're just going, you know, high heart rate the whole time. And there's not much conversation, but you're right in the middle of the night on these 24, 30 hour things, it, it's, you. it's easy to let the mind wander. It's easy to occupy yourself with. Uh, non-race-related thoughts. And then so, sl-
1: slowly, things get slower, slower, and slower. And yeah. we even talked a whole lot about it on the, on the Dark Zone previously, but we, we don't carry distance-measuring equipment. We can carry a watch. Correct. We have an altimeter, but we never know our speed in relation to land we're traveling. On. we never know if we're running 12-minute miles, 13-minute miles. And as a result, we can get progressively slower, slower, and slower where we, we're, we're crawling across the landscape. We don't realize it because you're in that isolated little bubble along the way. Yeah. Very nice. And, and, and that's a fair point to make too, the idea that there's a, there's a, there's a physical component to our racing. There's a mental. Um, I heard that Paula threw basically a new discipline at us and that was transitions. Uh, there were a lot of transitions in this race.
0: How did you guys do with that? Good. Uh, we, we tend to transition very well. I, I think a big thing that gives our team an advantage in transitions is we wear the same shoes the entire race for running paddling and biking. Um, we use what's called a power grip strap on our pedals. So it's not a clipless pedal. Uh, we certainly have clipless pedals. Uh, they're on my mountain bike now, but when I race, I'm almost always, no matter the length using power grips. Um, and it just makes it so you just, you hop off your bike and you run. Right. So, uh, I, I think our transitions are pretty dialed in because of that. Um, Pat, the paddling one was, was a little always a little long cause there's just a lot of gear to sort through. And, and when we got off the paddle, especially, but, uh, beyond that, I, th- I think we were, we were pretty solid. And again, um, we're kind of used to that having done some Apollos races. I think the, the stubborn mule that she put up on Lake superior earlier this year, um, we had more, even more transitions in that race than nationals had. There must've been nine or 10 transitions in a 30 hour race. So let's get a little granular then because you had a very good result
1: and it sounds like your team is really dialed in. You just said that you wear the same shoes the entire time and you use a power grip on your pedals and that, that helps attach you to the pedal, right? Because yeah. the, for those who who are new to adventure racing, very often adventure races will use clipless pedals, which is a system that basically connects the shoe to the pedal and you pedal better than that. What does your team do in terms of clothing changes? Do you race the entire same clothes the entire time when you make it a point to get out of wet stuff or you just race right through?
0: Yeah, so for, for a race this, sh- I mean, we're calling this, you know, quote unquote short, right? For a race this short, we're, we're wearing the same outfit the entire time. So we're wearing tri shorts, uh, pants over that, and then uh, a long sleeve Rail Riders top. Gotcha. And then along the way,
1: you'll, you'll have a rain jacket on you. Um, do, you do you race with a puffy, with a, with a puffy down jacket in there for safety or just leave that behind?
0: Uh, this, this gear list required us to have either a fleece or a wool top. Um, so we carried them the whole time. We carried our waterproof jackets the whole time. We carried our waterproof pants. That all just stayed in the bottom of the pack. I mean it never it never got nearly we're we're Wisconsin people, right? It never got nearly cold enough yeah. in this race in particular that we need that. I, I think we don't break out the the like the uh, waterproof shell or any of that stuff till it gets below 40, till it gets in the 30s. That's when we usually oh, break that stuff out. Yeah, that's that's very I was in
1: Wisconsin that you guys are pretty tough up there when it comes to the cold. <laughs> I've, I've watched enough Green Bay Packers games to know what it's like in Lambeau Field.
0: <laughs> there you go. Exactly. We're Now we're, no, we're not going through the race with, with uh, paint on our chests. But exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, that, that's for the that's for the next nationals when you have to go represent <laughs> yeah. out west. There you very go. Nice. So 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 from a technical perspective and you mentioned that you raced well over 100 races, it sounds like you have your own personal system dialed in, which you've learned over time. Yeah. I think back to your beginning racing when you started. What were some of the errors that you might have bumped into that you would warn a newer racer about? What were some of the mistakes you made in the beginning?
0: Oh man, um, th- there's so many, right? Like we-, we probably weren't eating the right things. We had uh, just pure water. We weren't drinking. Uh, we weren't taking any kind of electrolytes. Um, our-, our gear was very beginner heavy gear, and-, and like, but I don't know if any of those are really like true mistakes, right? Those are just like learning experiences that you have while you adventure race, like. Uh, you know, you, you see a lot on a, the adventure race discussion board or adventure race discussion group, Facebook page, all these questions. And I, I think, I think Dan from Bend had a great response to it maybe a week or two ago about, um, just being able to, uh, have these experiences where things don't go right. And that's kind of part of the fun about the sport is this like kind of trial and error and figuring out what works for you. Cause n- you know, not any one pair of shoes is going to fit every racer, not any one, uh, nutrition solution for what you're going to eat is going to work for every racer. So it's all this like trial and error to kind of figure stuff out. Now I, I also know like, cause it's, it's fun when you save your maps from those early races to look back and be like, remember, we got so lost on that river. And then you look at the map 10 years later, you're like, Oh, we probably should have taken the trail that was just, you know, next to it <laughs> as opposed to fording the river for a mile, whatever that may be.
1: Right. Um, and, and then so- the, the famous act of going home after a race and getting your GPS track. And looking at the GPS yeah. track and the map and being like, have I never looked at a map before in my life? Like, how do I not know to go in that <laughs> direction? And so, yeah. so you, you, you keep on a pretty important thing that we like to talk about for, for people who are new to adventure racing, that there's this constant upward learning curve of you try it, you do the best you can. There are some things that you're very proficient at. There are some things that you're not so proficient at, but you enjoy yourself the entire time. And then you get better the next race and the next race, and you sort of move up that yep. curve. So I like the fact that you made a distinction that the early, the early race career decisions that you made in regards to gear and route choices and all that, those weren't mistakes, but those were opportunities to grow and to, get, and to get better at that experience. And then over time, you don't make those same errors, those same mistakes, those same decisions again and again and again. When you started racing, what were you good at from
0: the beginning? it's a great question. Like, I, I, I don't know if we were good at anything. And, and I started racing with, with my now wife, Anna, we were just a uh, boyfriend, girlfriend at college at the time. But I, I don't necessarily. I mean, we were finishing like dead last for many races. So I don't know if we were actually good at anything other than being having an adventurous spirit.
1: Well, let me pause you. So why go back? So, so you did races, yeah. you came in last and you said, and that was like plural. It was like you came in last once. You came in last multiple times. Yeah, oh yeah. And you, and you kept coming back to the race. And for our listeners, this man just came in third at nationals. So you went from last multiple times to third. So why did you keep returning to the racing?
0: Oh, because we had a blast. I mean, I, honestly, I think too for for years we didn't even approach it as a race. We just approached it as like, man, someone's going to set up a whole like like adult scavenger hunt out in the woods for us to go play around all day. That sounds like a blast. Let's go do it. And it wasn't really a race. It was just like, let's go have a fun adventure through this uh, what they're calling adventure race. Right. Uh, But didn't approach it with a race mindset. And I think like that's a great way to get into the sport just to go have fun and like not expect anything from the result.
1: And that that is I think that's a a very important thing for you to say out loud for people who are learning about adventure racing that. The metrics that many sports traditionally use to measure success are not the same metrics that we use in adventure racing. Now let's be honest though, is a race. It's an adventure race. It's not an adventure walk. It's not an adventure stroll. It's a race. So there is a competition level to it, but the competition is mostly with yourself and with other teams. And if you've raced hard and you've tried the best that you could, and you've honored the course and the race director through your effort, whatever your final result is, you had a great experience absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. What do you, what do you think in terms of your racing, the hundred races that you've done, what jumps out at you as a race in which you really did a job that you were very proud of, that all those factors came together. What race would you go back to say that it was so successful, so much fun. You remember that as, as a really great experience.
0: Oh man. So, and I think, I think I'm almost up to like 140 races at this point. And, uh, I think I have, if I'm counting right, I think I've had six races ever of those 140 that I would say were pretty, what I would call flawless. And, and I'm, I'm approaching flawless definition from the mindset of the navigator of the team, right? Where I didn't make any, 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 any nav mistakes. Right. Um, so, so that would be one way to look at the, that question, Brian, where I, I think, uh, I, I could give you those six races, but. I think maybe more so is like that doesn't necessarily like just having like spot on navigation doesn't encapsulate like, like a flawless or a perfect race. I think so many other parts of it are like how your team worked together to get through adversity. So sometimes those races that that come to mind are the ones where like stuff really went wrong. And like, we still got ourselves to the finish line. Can you tell us about um, one of those races? Oh, Oh, I've got the perfect one. I've got one just from this year. So just earlier this year, at um the no sleep adventure race which is a 20-hour race um again eric and ann and i were were racing trying to get things dialed in for nationals i think it was our second to last long race before nationals so we really wanted to go well and uh it, it was a midnight start this year so we got our maps got everything planned out put maps in bags got gear set and then we had like an hour left so we're like okay let's sleep in the car for 45 minutes just to get a little shut-eye before the race starts. Uh, we all managed to fall asleep for not 45 minutes, probably 15, right? By the time by that time your mind winds down a little bit. Got up, um, ran to the boats a couple miles, got in the boats. The, the waterhead was like a huge swelling river that was a couple teams were getting tipped over in canoes. We managed through it just fine. We get to the next section. It, I mean, it's obviously a one-way paddle with what that river's doing. Get to the bikes, which we dropped earlier in the race, like dropped off from our cars. And uh, I don't have the rest of the course map, <laughs> so I have only brought with me the <laughs> paddle map. And I'm like, "Hey guys, do you have the do you have the map?" And they're like, "You know, it, obviously, no, they're like, like, what do you no, mean? Do we have the map? No, no, You're
1: no excuse us, Mr. Navigator. <laughs> no, wait, let me let me let me check my race rolls here." I think you have the maps. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. So, um, so we said, well, uh, it's probably back at the start. We don't have a map of how to get to the start, but five, six hours ago, we drove from the start to here to drop our bikes off. I think we can remember how to bike back to where headquarters is, even though we don't have a map of that. We only have a map of the river to back to get back to headquarters. So we, we managed to recall it. It's maybe four or five turns. We almost make a wrong turn and end up in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. Uh, but we get back, and you know that takes half an hour, 45 minutes of biking. We get our maps, and then we proceed to the course, which is another 15 to 30 minutes away in the other direction. Um, and we're obviously in last place right? This is a race we're going in, um, hoping or expecting to win. Um, and now we're an hour at least behind the leaders, um, starting a 20 hour race, (laughs) you know, quite a, quite a bit behind. Um, so we we actually managed from there to be pretty flawless and we actually come from behind and win that race. Uh, we, (laughs) we push. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
1: So let's get this (laughs) clear because people are now looking at their radio like a, like a dog looking at the radio their podcast player right no one listens on radios anymore so you do the paddle you forget your maps you pedal back to the start you find your maps and you win the 20 hour race
0: yeah yeah it was a it was a push i mean it, we had to push hard and i think it was kuat so. that i think <laughs> kuat was the team that we just passed on like the final trek section, and, and we we just basically <laughs> we left it all out there in an attempt to try to make up for that opening hour, hour and a half.
1: So, so did anybody break it to to KUAT, that the team that beat them actually started an hour and a half behind them? Because I yeah, would I, I, they probably threw I, their stuff in the river after that.
0: I think I think they t- I think someone told them like afterwards at the finish line because I, I actually remember the look on Jason's face when he heard that, and <laughs> I don't think he was <laughs> too happy to hear that either. But yeah, I would just. <laughs>
1: Just don't tell me I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive home right now. Uh, similar story. <laughs> we were doing a race one time, myself and, and, and my two regular teammates, uh, Jim and Shari, and we were in we were in we were in canoes that were that were too small for the water and too small for us. So it was just a dump fest, the dump fest, over and over and over again. We ended up abandoning the canoe, and it was a long story. But Jimmy, who's our navigator, put his backpack inside a black garbage bag to keep it dry. Right, that's an mm-hmm. effective strategy. He just didn't tie the garbage bag to anything in the canoe. So when we went over in our attempts to, to save the canoe in, the, in the, the class two massive whitewater of the Loyal Sock River, mind you, um, we looked down and the bag is just floating away with all of his gear <laughs> and all of our maps. And you figure it out, right? And what we did was we just walked up and down the river for a few hours. We came we saw the bag down in the water. We get the bag out and we just keep racing. And I don't remember our result in that Uh, race, except it was pretty respectable. Right. And so you start all the way in the back and it was, so, yeah, so I can completely relate to that when things go haywire. So walk us through the, the the successful team dynamic that has to exist that when one member of the team and it was you, but it could have been anybody makes an error like that. And then you have to, you have to reorient yourself and you have to basically backtrack. How does the team manage that? Like, what do you do as a group? That sort of, because in many sports, if If a teammate made a tremendous error that put somebody an hour and a half back, it would be world War three like imagine the Tour de France right if a If a Tour de France racer caused his teammate to lose ninety minutes in a race, which would be like a thousand years, it would be warfare between the teammates. How did you all manage that kind of an error and still hold it together and come back and win? What did you say to each other at that time?
0: I mean, I've got great teammates, right, and, and they're really supportive. So I think part of it is like everyone's got to be positive no matter what happens, right? So that that positivity and that all right, well, this this will uh, this will give us a chance to get some extra biking. in. I think one of someone said that like, right. okay, well, let's we'll get to we'll get some extra biking in on this one. Like yeah. you know, like just, they,
1: just... They, Like they say in baseball, they say extra innings is free baseball.
0: Right? <laughs> there you, you have... go. Right. So it, it, it's being positive, and then I think on the other side of things, like yeah, I mean, it, you just you got to leave the the ego at the door in this kind of a sport. Right. Um, and, and you know, I mean, you, you gave the analogy, of the tour de France and yes, like, but I, I think we also in adventure racing, we've done enough to know that an hour and a half is a lot, but it, you, it also isn't right. Like there's so much that can happen in 20 hours of adventure racing to any team, um, that we knew if like, even though that was a giant setback, if everything else went our way, which it, it just happened to, you can overcome that.
1: So over the course of 140 races, there's a lot of different distances in there. What is the longest race you've ever done?
0: Uh, longest I did was uh, four-day Untamed New England. Uh, maybe was that four years back or so?
1: Yeah, I think it might have been 2018.
0: Yeah, that sounds right. I think we I think were yeah. there together. That was, uh, yeah, there you go. That was, that was
1: stage one where the, um, we were getting the maps, and the, the first checkpoint was in the middle of the green blob there was no yeah. trails there was nothing coming towards it it was just this checkpoint in the middle of nowhere and my and jim and i my race partner and i we climbed the wrong mountain we got oh, a, we, we got yeah. that we were, like, were higher than the cp back down the mountain up the other side that was our first um expedition level race and that was a very 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 steep learning curve for us a great experience for us you learn so much but yeah we, ha- we had every single emotion in that race you know, the, the, oh, yeah. the only the only thing, only mistake that we really made was, and I think this was, and I think I played a large role in this, was that we came to a point in the race after the big trek. Then we had the, that big, beautiful trek up, up by, um, I fit the name, of the Belknaps, yeah. that beautiful yeah. trek, which at the time I remember being blown away because I had never done a trek in an expedition level race. And you were just trekking for six, seven hours, eight, nine hours. Like it was the longest race I'd ever done. And I think that Jimmy and I... When we knew that we were going to be close on cutoffs, we could have stayed on the course longer. And instead, we kind of rode the bike in and we got in the kayak and we finished on the early side. I think if we went back out there today, we'd, we, we would have stayed on the course for the whole other day. Like that was our, okay. but that was, a, that was a first time doing, like it wasn't to your point. It wasn't a mistake. It was a learning experience. And then we go, yeah. to, then we go to Scotland and we have a blast in Scotland. Very nice. Cool. So, cool. so, so, the four-day untamed New England, which, by the way, fantastic race. Grant Killian should put a race on tomorrow. What, a, what an amazing race, director! Oh yeah, um, yep. And then, what is, what are you, what, what's, what's short out there by you? Six-hour short race? What's the shortest day that you see up in Wisconsin?
0: Yeah, six. Uh, Paula actually, the race director for nationals puts on an early spring six-hour race every year. Is that the stubborn? Um, so is that
1: the stubborn fool?
0: The stubborn fool, exactly. Well,
1: yep, yep. She's. She yeah, and
0: that then there's a, there's a bunch of like eight, nine, ten-hour stuff out here. So probably actually the majority of the races I do in a year are eight, nine, 10 hour. And you know, I mean, it's, it's just a different feel to a race like that. What I like about it is I can go out and I can leave home on a Saturday morning, really early and get home on a Saturday night and be cleaned up and, and, and not spend, you know, a race like nationals. I love it. And and expedition races, I love even more, but man, the the time uh, commitment to that is so huge. It's nice, especially, um, I I'm an educator, uh, to be able to go out, leave on a you know work the work week, uh, and then be mentally recovered by Monday morning. <laughs> right,
1: as a, as opposed to the getting in the car the minute school ends on Friday, crawling yeah. in the house Sunday night and going to work on Monday morning. You know and exactly, your, your legs are a little shaken, and you show up to work and you're covered in bruises. You look like you were in Fight Club. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, in terms of nutrition during the race, you said that you you really nailed it when you were at nationals. Are you a real food guy? Are you a processed food guy? Are you a mix? What really, what what have you found that works well for you?
0: No, personally, I'm, I do mostly processed. Well, I shouldn't say processed. Like I had a ton of, there's this guy that makes like maple syrup shot things called the Maple Dude in Wisconsin. I I must've had 20 of those in nationals. So just like, like think of like a goo packet Mm -hmm. and it's just pure, 100% pure maple syrup. So it goes down easy. It's smooth. So I I must've had 20 of those. And then I, you know, delightful. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like breakfast, breakfast, all race long, and then uh, tailwind in my water bladder. Um, and uh, let's see, I mean, and then I think beyond that, it's it's just a, a mix of other like processed, you know, race food that you'd find at, at the bike shop or the running shop, I think a few bags of chips found their way in there but i'll tell you also that that my wife and teammate anna she had tons of like real food like sandwich kind of food and uncrustables and uh she she much prefers going on the side of like real actual food that she races with versus i just i just like the grab and go stuff like maple syrup and jelly beans.
1: Which is an interesting <laughs> thing to learn, right? Because when you talk to racers, there's the whole spectrum, right? There's the Andes of the world yeah. that that flourish with real food. And then there's the Tims that do well with the stuff coming out of a wrapper. And that's something that you only discover over time. That having raised consistently what works well for you when I started, I was able to tolerate a lot of the processed stuff a lot better, the stuff in bags. And the longer I race, I need real food. Um, I, had the, I had the wonderful opportunity to race in Ecuador this past summer. And a large part of that was I made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before the race. And I had them all wrapped up. And now during the course of the race, you, you know, it's a four-day race. You eat all of them over the course of it. It worked out really well. But you're right. To that point, it's what works for you, right? So it sounds like your nav increased over time right? Because you, you race so much, you got your nutrition, you got your clothing down in terms of other places that you think you could improve a little bit. Anything else jump out of you as you keep growing in the sport?
0: I mean, we, we find that's one of my favorite things on the car at home. We always talk about what we can do better. And we certainly found things, right? Like um, we, we still like, we want to get faster at paddling. Uh, we're, we went actually just this last week. We went out and hit some more like rugged mountain bike trails that are less flowy because we want to get better at riding the hard technical stuff. So, so there's still stuff like that for our skill set. I still love to go out and practice navigating. Right, I save all my race maps because um, I'll go out and like do races from ten years ago. I don't remember it anymore. Like it, it, specifically where the points were, and I'll go like try it out and test it. Um, and like for for new races, I'll mention the other thing is the the way I got really good at orienteering really fast. Was orienteering clubs, just going to as many orienteering meets as I could. I went to grad school in, in Los Angeles, and between the LA Orienteering Club and the um, uh, San Diego Orienteering Club, I was going to like an orienteering meet every other week, if not every weekend. So yeah, I, I would agree with that. Doing 100%. a ton of orienteering is just so helpful to learning to be a better navigator for adventure racing.
1: And I think to that point, too, while I've yet to be the, the lead navigator on, on my team, I find that as my navigation skills grow, I'm able to be there from the navigator when he or she's having a hard time and, and, and they begin to feel yep. upside down. If your teammates have a sense of the course and if they're holding a map also, when it comes to those points, I don't quite know where I am or what direction to go. That person brings a lot of value to the team experience. And adventure racing is interesting because we try to have these clearly defined roles for people on teams. So you're the navigator how would you describe your other regular teammates roles? What do they do? Is, is there a mule that carries a lot of gear? Is there somebody who works on big picture logistics? Like how do your two teammates, how do Eric and Anna, how do they break up their roles?
0: Yeah. So, um, so Eric's kind of our guy that's in shards of carrying a little extra weight, right? You might call him the mule on the team. Uh, he's also the guy that's running and, uh, and he's the one that has the clues uh, for, for the punches. And so I'm asking, what are we looking for in case I don't have the time, like this race, the time to write on the map, there's so little time beforehand. So, he's reading that he's doing the punching of every CP. Uh, so I can be staring at the map of like the route to the next one as he, as he's like physically at the, at the control, punching it. Uh, Anna is amazing at like managing the team. So in terms of like making sure everyone's doing well, if, if, if one of us like starts to slow down a bit, like checking in, like making sure we're eating enough, making sure we're drinking enough, all that kind of stuff. Um, she's really good at that. She also is pace counting for me. So what, you know, on certain sections, I'll say like, Hey, I, I want to make sure I don't miss this uh, feature. Can you, can you let me know when we've gone 340 meters and she's, she can usually be within about 10 meters over that distance. Um, so she's managing that. So we're, we're splitting up things pretty well. I think that everyone's usually pretty active and actively involved, uh, in the race itself, right. As we're going. And then I'm trying my best to, as, especially on foot, um, to relay what we should be seeing as we're going, because sometimes my, especially at night. I'm buried in the map, and it's hard to look back and forth with clear vision. So I'm saying, "Hey, we should be—we uh, should pass a trail intersection. We should see the the tri- the land rise on the right, and after it falls down into a renter, we got to drop into that. So then, they're also being my second and third set of eyes, looking for the features that I'm seeing on the map as I describe it to them as we're running.
1: And I think that raises a good point as a navigator because um, I've seen the experience in which na- if the navigator is not talking to anybody, he or mm-hmm. she maybe working really, really hard, but you run the risk of, make, of turning your teammates into passengers.
0: Yeah, that, that, uh, and my, my teammates would say I'm the opposite because I, I tend to almost talk too much. <laughs> and they need, they need to know, like, where's the important stuff we need to know? Because they can't, you know, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to keep track. So I've, I've actually over the years had to kind of back or dial back what I'll say. But, but I think you're absolutely right. If, if your navigator isn't relaying anything, uh, they're, they're not getting the most out of their team that they could in terms of help with that navigation. Right. You know, adventure racing is a study in human nature, right? A
1: thousand times over and how we respond to adversity, how we work together as teammates, how do we fuel our body? How do we take care of our minds? All of that. So what's next for rib mountain racing?
0: Oh, man. I mean, we've got we're already signed up for three races this fall. There's two more in Wisconsin, an October race and a November race. We're going to go down and do the Castlewood race that Emily and Earl put on uh, in December, it's on my birthday this year and I've never done that race. So I was like, I told the end like what I want for my birthday is to go do an adventure race. So we're going to go do that. And then, uh, we put on two races a year, right? So we, we put on a, a winter race in January, just like a short three hour sprint in central Wisconsin here. And then we put on, um, in Memorial day, we put on a big one. That's uh three hour, eight hour and 18 hour. Uh, and last year we sold that thing out at
1: 500 people. And I think, and I want to, I think that that race may have been the largest adventure race ever held in the country
0: uh, certainly in recent years, I, I feel like, like way back in the heyday, I think there was some ones that were more than 500, but it was certainly, certainly the biggest we've had in five or 10 years. Yeah. That's
1: fantastic. And so obviously, obviously you're doing a great job, right? You have huge lots of people coming out to do your races, multiple experience. So, so thank you for that. Thank you for giving that back to the adventure. Oh, it's community. it's fun,
0: man. It's yeah. It's, it's the least we could do for the sport that's given us so much. Right. So yeah, we, we have a blast with that thing. It's great. Okay.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So, so Tim, uh, we appreciate your, your time on the dark zone. Thank you for being here for the, for to uh, recount your nationals experience and your deep, um, background in racing 140 races. You're, you're, you're a font of, uh, of information. I will tell you that when I did another interview and I said, I was interviewing you they were like, that's a great, positive, optimistic person to interview. So mm-hmm. thanks for being on the dark zone, Tim, any final words for our community before you sign off?
0: Oh, yeah. Thank you, Brian, first of all. And and I think for anyone that's like kind of on the fence about doing an adventure race, uh, just jump in and do one. And I think that's the best thing you can do yourself. And I think you'll find uh, you'll get hooked right away. It's, it's such a great sport and it's such a welcoming community of people that after you do that first race, make sure you just go talk to people at the finish line. Don't be shy about that because I, I really think it is one of the best communities um, of, of people you'll find that are willing to share tips and share their race stories and, and help you out to, to give you a better race experience every time you go out there.